In the spring of 1981, as a doctoral student in Nottingham, England, I piled the family into our small car and drove to Buxton. Now, these words are, of course, not mine. I wasn't, uh, how do you say, alive in 1981. Uh, these are the words of Scott McKnight. He's a professor of New Testament at Northern Baptist Seminary in Illinois. And McKnight goes on. This is from his book, The Blue Parakeet, Rethinking How You Read the Bible. He says, Professor F.F. F. Bruce, perhaps the most widely known evangelical scholar of the previous generation and a specialist on Paul, had invited our family to his home for late afternoon tea. When we arrived, we were welcomed into the home, and we sat in the living room for about two hours. During a break, I asked Professor Bruce a question that I had stored up for him. Professor Bruce, what do you think of women's ordination? I don't think the New Testament talks about ordination, he replied. Well, what about the silencing passages of Paul on women, I asked. Bruce replied, I think Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew we were turning his letters into Torah. I think Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew we were turning his letters into Torah. Now, this is not a message about women's ordination, <laughs> although that is a worthwhile topic that I would love to discuss at another time. This, rather, is a message about norms, norms, really about a new norm, our norm, which should dictate how we as Christians live our lives today. He says, Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew we were treating his letters like Torah. Well, what does that even mean? Well, first, let me just say a few words about Torah. Torah, or also called the Law of Moses. Now, you can read some of the Torah in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Uh, you can read some of Torah in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, Torah, which means law or instruction, teaching even, Torah was, in its original context, a covenant document, a covenant document. And so God, as you read in Genesis, made a covenant with the descendants of a figure by the name of Abraham, and really Isaac and Jacob, the twelve sons of Jacob. So God commits himself in relationship to a particular people, and he makes a covenant with this group. Now, these covenants were quite common in the ancient Near East. You'd have entire nations making covenants with other nations. You'd have politicians or rulers making covenants or treaties with each other. And often what you would see with these agreements was a document, kind of like a contract. Now, we, we use covenant documents today. We sign lease agreements. We sort of have you know, a marriage contract. We have other covenants that stipulate these certain conditions or standards or regulations of the relationship. The covenant dictates 
how the two parties are to relate to each other, and often it outlines the benefits for obedience or faithfulness to the covenant and the penalties for disobedience. That is what Torah is, a covenant document. This covenant document, though, was uh, associated with a particular ethnic group, the people of Israel. And so it has often been said that ancient Jews observed Torah in order to earn righteousness, like a form of legalism or, or works righteousness, but there really isn't any evidence of that. The, the idea was that Following Torah solidified one as a Jew. It kind of drew a thick boundary line around this group that was thought of as the people of God. So Torah observance following this covenant document would reinforce one's status as a Jewish person, as a member of the family of God. Life then in ancient Israel was bound up in defined by, shaped by, observance of Torah, which, like I said, reinforced one's Jewishness, one's membership in God's family. That was the idea. Then, however, comes Jesus. And all the events we read about in Acts, we just went through the Acts of the Apostles. We've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We've got Peter's vision with that sheet of unclean animals, his journey to the home of Cornelius, the Gentile, non-Jew Cornelius, and all the conversions that happened then. We see, in other words, Torah, at least this thick boundary line of Jews only, this, this idea being challenged, challenged. And now no one speaks to this more plainly than a man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And if you haven't been with us, uh, we've transitioned to kind of part two of our Great Commission series. We'll be looking at the letters of the Apostle Paul. Now, I have a slide up here. <clears throat> we've talked about Paul's missionary journeys, some of them. And so far, we've talked about his mission to Macedonia, where he wrote some letters to the church at Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, and we've talked about his mission to Achaia, or Greece, and his letters to the Corinthians. Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about his letter to the Galatians, and we'll actually talk about this next week, too. So if you see, the region of Galatia was to the east, near Cilicia, which is actually where Paul was from, the city of Tarsus. Now, the cities in Galatia, you think of Iconium, Derbe, Lystra, the city in Antioch, these cities were primarily inhabited by non-Jewish people. At least the churches that Paul established were primarily Gentile churches. Think back to the message I preached called Pagan Potential. Remember that one in Lystra, where they thought Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes? That is a Galatian city. So these were largely non-Jewish churches. Now, Paul believed that, that a new norm had arrived in the person of Jesus. No longer was this covenant document the defining and circumscribing text that defined a people, but the life of this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, was the new norm. This is what Paul taught. 
He taught that our lives are to be governed by a particularly shaped human life, a life shaped by selflessness and love, faithfulness to God himself. So, so he believed that this norm eclipsed this norm of Torah, but some, it seems, challenged this idea. There were some who were Jewish Christian teachers, missionaries, you could say, who came into the Galatian church after Paul had left, remember, largely Gentile churches, and they came primarily from uh, the church in Jerusalem, from James, the brother of Jesus, from his church. Not to say James endorsed this, but these men came from James or from the circumcision party, it says in Galatians. So these were Christians. These were Jewish Christians who came into the Galatian churches, but who taught that the gospel doesn't replace or eclipse Torah, but the gospel needs to work in tandem with Torah. And so they were teaching these Gentile believers that in order to truly be Christians, you had to become Jewish. You had to be circumcised, adult males circumcised. You had to follow the Jewish food laws, dietary restrictions, observe the Sabbath, the festivals, and so forth. They didn't think that the gospel was the new norm, but they thought that it worked in conjunction with Torah. Now, this this idea, these teachers even influenced the Apostle Peter. And Paul tells this story of uh, being in Antioch, which became his kind of home base. And I think you can see Antioch to the east, yes, where Peter had submitted to this new norm of the gospel and started to eat meals with Gentiles. That's something that Torah, or a certain reading of it, forbids. But Peter had submitted to this new norm, and he was eating with them, welcoming them. But then, certain men from James came, and Peter, I don't think he was convinced by them. I think there was an element of peer pressure. And so Peter heard the teaching of these men that you had to continue to observe Torah, and he pulled away. He pulled away from the Gentiles, and he refused to welcome them in Antioch. Now, Paul gets up in his face about this, uh, and he tells us about this exchange in his letter to the Galatians. He, he shares this conversation with the Galatian church in response to the issues they were dealing with. So it's into this situation where we've got these Jewish Christian teachers trying to get these Gentiles to become Jewish, to be real Christians, that Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. And so that's the letter we're going to focus on this morning and next week. Now, the passage I'd like to look at is arguably the densest passage in the letter, and it's Galatians 2, verses 14 through 21. So have your Bibles at the ready. We'll dive in in just a second. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you so much for being present here with us. We feel you. We do, Lord. We gather in order to be stimulated to greater works of faith, acts of love. May this gathering just galvanize us, inspire us to be you to this uh, world, this Midcoast Maine region. We love you and pray that you would transform us through this time, through our time in your word and our time together as a family. We love you and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So if you haven't turned there, Galatians 2, 14, you can uh, cut the slide, Eric. And we're going to be reading from the ESV. And yes, I did say 2, 14 through 21. Um, if you look in your ESV Bibles, you'll see that uh, a new section begins at 15 through 21. Uh, I think, with all due respect, this is misleading. <laughs> Uh, after the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith became a very significant topic for Christians, and I think the editors believe that Paul is, is kind of entering into a discussion about that doctrine at verse 15, but what he's really doing is he's continuing his summary of his conversation with Peter, which starts in verse 14. Justification by faith wasn't formulated until the 15th century. And this is Paul writing in the first, and so we would do well to not inject those ideas into this very ancient text. So let's start at verse 14, and I want you to imagine this whole passage as Paul's recount of his, uh, recounting his conversation with Peter uh, in the hearing of the Galatians, if that makes sense. Okay. Galatians 2, starting at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct that is, pulling away from eating with the Gentiles, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. The main idea that I want to expose you to from this passage is that for Christians, for followers of Jesus, the new norm, the new standardizing principle the arbiter of truth, that which dictates what is right, wrong, who is in, who is out, what is sin, what is righteous, is not the Torah, nor is it a Torah-like approach to Scripture or religion. The new norm for Christians is the gospel. It is the life of a human being, Jesus the Christ. 
That is the idea that I want to draw out of this text. And there's a couple of ways I could do that. But this morning, rather than going through verse by verse and pulling out all of the details of this dense passage, what I'd like to do is unpack a few key terms or phrases. There's the the word justify. It's huge in this text. The phrase works of the law. And then this phrase, faith in Christ, which can be translated in other ways. So let us just dive in then and talk about the word justify. Justify, all right? Justify occurs three times alone in verse 16. So we've got, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. It says, in order to be justified by faith in Christ... By works of the law, no one will be justified. It occurs once more in verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, dot, dot, dot. Justify. Now, what does this word mean? Now, after the Protestant Reformation in the 15th, 16th centuries, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, those guys, um, justification was often thought about in terms of the individual, in terms of uh, one's moral or legal righteousness, in, in this space of a court of law, that kind of setting. To justify someone was, was almost as if a guilty party walked into a courtroom and left acquitted, innocent, blameless, that sort of thing. So, so many studies of Paul in this doctrine after the Reformation thought of justification that way. But this text was written 1,500 years before that, and not in the context of Roman Catholicism, but in the context of Second Temple Judaism, okay? Justification in Second Temple Judaism really had to do with identifying someone as part of the people of God. How do you know if someone is part of the group that God would bless? That was the live question For the Galatians, the question was, do you have to be Jewish ethnically or a proselyte, or can you actually be a Gentile and be part of God's family? Thinking back to the discussion of Torah, the idea was not to earn individual righteousness, but to solidify one's status as part of that family, part of that group. So justification has to do with whether one is reckoned to be part of that group, whether one is obviously, visibly part of the people of God, that idea. And that's the question that these teachers and Peter and Paul are debating, okay? Now, the second word or phrase that I want to talk about is works of the law. Works of the law. It can also be translated works of Torah, that's probably better, or Torah observance is often how I like to translate it. Along with the last point, uh, this does not refer to a general kind of works righteousness or uh, trying to obey just any kind of law. It, it refers specifically to adherence to the law of Moses, to Torah observance. And now, this phrase occurs three times again in verse 16. It says, we know that a person's not justified. A person is not considered part of God's family on the basis of works of the law, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Pretty redundant, if you ask me. Very dense. 
Works of the law or Torah observance, again, refers not to this sort of works righteousness or legalism, but it refers to specific practices. We think of the Sabbath, circumcision, food laws, the festivals, that identified somebody visibly as Jewish, as part of that covenant family. And so many Jews thought that their belonging in the family of God, this group that God would bless, depended on their Jewishness, which was reinforced by observance of this covenant contract, right? So that is what Jews, at least the Jews who had come from James, had thought in the first century, that one was considered part of this group on the basis of Jewishness, which is solidified through Torah. The last phrase that I want to look at, then, is this phrase, faith in Christ. Now, it could also be translated the faith of Christ, if you read the King James. Uh, some modern translations go with the faithfulness of Christ, and there's probably even other alternatives nowadays. This phrase can be found twice in verse 16, that loaded verse person is not justified by Torah observance, but through faith in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. It occurs once more, actually in verse 20, sort of. It says, the life I live is by faith in the Son of God. It's the same construction. Now, throughout my life, I've gone back and forth over this debatable phrase of whether it should be translated faith in Christ for the faithfulness of Christ. Uh, during my studies in grad school, I was passionate supporter of the faithfulness of Christ. Many of my professors translated it this way. But as I read Paul, all of his letters, and try to interact with his theology, I think both, both meanings are there. And if we can keep both meanings in a translation, that would be helpful. And so I often translate this Christ faith with a hyphen, Christ faith. This word faith, uh, again, kind of in this individualistic modern context, we think of it as believing in a set of propositions, whether or not they are true, believing something. But faith in antiquity, especially in the Roman era, it's pistis and fides, fides, fidelity. Uh, faith had to do with relationships, communities, loyalty, reliability, dependability. Faithfulness. To use the word faith, then, has to do with the glue that keeps relationships together, that, that allows business and commerce relationships, political relationships, family relationships to flourish in the ancient world. Christ's faith has to do with our reliance, our utter and complete reliance on the reliable one, Jesus. Jesus faithfully obeyed the commission of his Father, became a human being to the point of death on a cross. He was faithful, loyal, dependable. And for us to exhibit or exercise faith in him is not to believe a certain set of truths. It's to rely wholeheartedly, to stake our existence on the reliable one, Jesus. That phrase is placed in complete juxtaposition with Torah observance, 
Paul says that some depend on Torah observance for their membership in God's family. They think they are justified, reckoned righteous on the basis of Jewishness, but no. We are considered part of God's family on the basis of the life and work of the Messiah, the faithful Messiah, Jesus. That is what Paul is saying here, is that this new norm for us is a person. The life, death, and resurrection of this person, Jesus, which is summarized in what we would call the gospel. The gospel. That means the gospel for Christians is our new norm. It's our standard for truth, ethics, values. But friends, many Christians, and I've done it, we treat Scripture, this expanded version of Torah, we treat it as though it was Torah 2.0. We treat it as though it were a contract with stipulations Rules and regulations that draws a thick boundary around who we are and lets nobody else in. We adhere so militantly to these rules, these principles, that sometimes we transgress the gospel like Peter did. We commit biblically inspired actions that actually exclude and harm other people. And act out of line with the gospel. But by adhering to any standard above the gospel, we are evacuating the gospel of its power. What Paul says at the end of this passage is telling, he says, if the Torah or something else is still our norm, then Jesus died for no reason. On the cross, friends, Jesus was crucifying not only himself, but the Torah, too. He was killing a religious perspective, enslaved to rules and excluding of others. He was crucifying a way of life, an ancient yet provisional temporary norm, to birth in the resurrection a new norm. The gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has become our new norm. The boundary-crossing, privilege-losing, self-giving movement of God for us has become our new norm, friends. Not Torah or a Torah-like approach, enslaved to texts, rules, and regulations, but a human life given for others. Now, let me just say as a caveat here that I hold to a very high view of Scripture. I do. But we injure, we dishonor, we do damage to Scripture when we treat it as a set of rules, stipulations, as a contract that draws a line around us. Scripture for us is not Torah it is testimony. It is testimony beyond itself to a person 
the God-man, Jesus. Scripture is bearing witness to something else. It's not looking at itself. It's looking at Jesus. I am not denying the authority of Scripture, but we need to read Scripture as Christians, as pointing to Christ, not to itself. Now, to close, friends, uh, I went back and forth about this, but I wrote a paraphrase of this passage. Um, It's expanded from the ESV. It's a bit longer, but I'm only going to read part of it. And uh, through this, I want to close our time. But I want you to imagine Paul and Peter having a conversation. And I want you to imagine yourselves as the Galatians overhearing it. So I'm going to start at verse 19 and carry us through to the end. In response to Torah itself, Peter, to the intended function of Torah, that of guardian or chaperone, I, in the end, died to Torah. In other words, the Paul who relies on Torah as the sole arbiter of worth, value, fitness, that Paul is gone. He has died. What this means is that Torah no longer functions for me as the arbiter of worth, fitness, or value, and neither should it function so for you. I, Paul, died to Torah that I might finally, truly live to God. For this new Paul, this resurrected Paul, God has become the arbiter of worth, fitness, and value. It is God Himself who dictates for me what is righteous, what is sin, who is in, who is out, how to be saved, etc. I, Paul, have been crucified, co-crucified with Christ, Peter. This means that the I who now lives is not really Paul. It's Jesus, Messiah Jesus. The life I now live in the flesh with its value systems, its perspectives on worth, fitness, and righteousness, I live in complete and utter dependence, not on Torah, but on Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. This Christ faith, this gospel love, is my new standard, my new Torah. My life no longer depends then on Jewishness or Torah observance, no. It depends utterly, unequivocally, entirely on the faithful love of Jesus Christ. That's it. This shape of life, this selfless life of love, dictates everything for me. It tells me what is righteous, what is sin, who is in, who is out, how to be saved, all of it. This gospel alone is my new life standard, my new guiding norm. And church, may it be ours as well. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for nothing other than yourself. We thank you, Jesus, for your life, for forever becoming human for us, opening up a new way to live a new way, to relate to God, to the world, to ourselves. May we be a gospel people. May we read your scriptures afresh, anew, with vitality as loving testimony to the person of Jesus. 
May we, as flesh and blood people, new people, walk around as Jesus to this very needy world, Lord. We love you and pray that you would solidify our relationships as the family of God here this morning. Make us more like you, please. In Jesus' name, amen.